Hey everyone, it's been a while since we've actually encountered technical issues during a recording, so unfortunately we had a few during this episode. There are a few moments where our guest mic actually cuts out. During that time, you may hear the response from me uh, as part of just trying to record it to make it flow as best as possible, so my apologies in advance for that. Speaking of things that haven't occurred in a while, it's been it's been enough time since we've had a opener with a disclaimer on it, so I'm happy to give that for this guest this week. This podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Mike's views and remarks are his own and do not reflect those of organizations in which he is affiliated. And with that, we'll get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Between Two Studs. I'm Alex Studd. And I'm Ron Studd. And Ron, episode 25, it's the last episode with a guest of the first season. Right. Well, unless our our season finale, that's going to have one guest, right? Well, it's going to be Ruben. We are the guests. Right. Oh, you're right. You're right. Right. He's gonna he's gonna anchor that, so I guess that makes sense. That's fair. This this is the last episode of the season under the format that we've had for the last twenty odd episodes. Isn't that crazy? We're at twenty five episodes now. There we 25. go. Twenty five. And tonight we have an attorney. Oh, I said, hey, let's 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 redline this. Let's make sure everything's PC, everything's good. There's no issues. Let's bring on a lawyer. And so right. tonight. We have a good friend of mine, Mike DePrince, Esquire. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, studs. I just always wanted to call someone an Esquire, so I'm glad I got that one in there. Do you know the history of that at all? Like, why are lawyers Esquires? Like, what is that all about? I have zero clue. All I know is that I passed the bar exam, and therefore, I am an Esquire. If I was an Esquire, I would always introduce myself. I'd say, I am Alex Studd, Esquire. I would always introduce myself in that way. Every single time. <laughs> I'd introduce myself to like my mother's friends. I'd be like, I'm Alex Esquire. Nice to meet you. It does have well, a but- certain like air of importance that goes beyond even a lot of other things. Like even if somebody's like, I'm Dr. Stud, it's like, no, no, I'm Esquire. Well, like, ideally you'd be Dr. Stud Esquire. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, know, you got to have a law degree and a medical degree. Why not? Right. Just, just for. You, you don't. Know. What are you doing with your life? obviously obviously not spending it in school right (laughs) right (laughs) mike the first part of our show we call it the ember round it's really getting to know you it's a series of questions that we ask every one of our guests and we get some really interesting responses especially towards the latter half of the ember round so first question on the agenda how do you know us i would normally say stud now there are two studs so i know alex from Westchester University. We were in community service organization together and became very good friends. And then I have heard many stories of, of Ron through Alex. This is my first time getting the pleasure to meet and speak with Ron virtually in person. I, I'm, I'm a little bit frightened and scared. I'm sure Alex <laughs> has had a lot of fun things to say about me over the years. So hopefully uh, I live up to any of the hype or any of the, there was no uh, hype. Don't stories. worry, Ron. <laughs> okay, good, good. As long as we're done, then we're good. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What are some of your areas of interest and hobbies? Yeah. So, um, 
I'd say first off, I am born and raised in the Philadelphia area. So one of my interests is Philly, like any good Philadelphian. I am like overly defensive and proud of my hometown. I am an attorney, as we've been talking about. Takes up a lot of my free time, unfortunately, but free time outside of that, you know, I'm just traveling and uh, learning languages and cultures. Uh, I've hit 40 out of 50 U.S. states. My goal is to get to all 50 one of these days. You'll um, get there. You'll get there. Yeah. Yep. All in good time getting there. And yeah, generally, like I'm a I'm a Europhile. Eurovision was this weekend, so I was like all tuned in to that. I had never heard of that until like Eurovision's fantastic. I never heard of it. Like clearly I'm not cultured. I heard about it like three days ago <laughs> from my wife. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. So I only know about it from the movie on Netflix, but that was awesome. But it's like also American awesome Idol. Movie. It's like American Idol for the, all of Europe, is that right? Yeah, that that's basically right. Um, it was a song contest that I think started 65 years ago, not too uh, long after you know World War II. I, I, I don't quote me. I think it was an effort to kind of get Europe more unified um, and solidified behind the spirit of song. It's been a song contest every year since then, except for last year. It was canceled due to COVID. That was the first year. So basically, American Idol is a giant ripoff of this show that started 65 years ago. One could say that. I'm saying it. Put it put it on a billboard. You can attribute it to me, Alex Studd, comma Esquire. Just kidding. <laughs> not Esquire. Did not go to law school. I mean, I guess where you could argue maybe it's not, right? Is the fact that it's supposed to be like each country is supposed to select like the act that goes. So it's kind of like the best of the best of each country. Whereas American Idol you're you're basically just hoping you find people who are decent anywhere. Yeah, right? but but you're going to different states, which I mean, some of these states are the size sure. of these countries. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, but but you could also say that like a lot of the countries, each country kind of sends somebody that represents their country. So that could be some of their culture, some of their music, their language, etc. So Fair there's enough. there's I mean, enough there. It's like marrying the Olympics with American Idol. Is that yeah. am I am I right? I think that's yeah. That I I call it the Gay Olympics, so I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Mission awesome. accomplished. Love it. <laughs> you know, real quickly about the Philly thing. So obviously, I met you in the Philly area. Yeah. Do you do you import your Wooder and your other Johns back to DC with you? So I'm trying to throw in some colloquialisms. Yes, uh, John is definitely makes an appearance down here in DC. It does. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least among. Me in this household, that's about it. And a John, okay. just for the listener, that's basically a noun, right? It's a person, place, Any thing. Noun. Yes, John can mean anything you want John to mean. Right. So I'm going to the John, not, not I don't even know. I can't even know. Like, I, I'm going to go to Wawa, pick up a John there, and then I might go to another John after that and get another John while I'm at it and take a John home after that to my John. Understood completely. Now yes. I understand. Now we can move on to the next question. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying. This is always one of the most important questions we ask, Mike. What are you currently imbibing on? What are you drinking? I am currently drinking uh, Lagavulin 16 meat. Whoa. Ooh. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm, I'm curious. I, I don't think I followed much of what you said, but it sounded really nice. It sounded fancy. Yeah. It's very tasty. Um, so fortunately, I recovered from my college days of not being able to tolerate whiskey after an unfortunate experience. 
I do love my whiskey now. So Lagavulin, um, for those rec fans, is Ron Swanson's preferred whiskey. 16, I want to say it's a 16-year-old single malt whiskey. It has like a smoky, complex feel. Uh, the neat, there's no ice cube. It's just a glass of whiskey. Nice. Wow. You are an originalist. No, no splash of water, no ice cube, no nothing. Just whiskey. And that's a, that's a, that's a scotch, right? Yeah, scotch whiskey. And Ron, what are you drinking right now? Well, I am going for a good old standby. Um, I think I've talked about this on the show before. Bullet bourbon. Nothing oh, yeah. too fancy tonight, but, you know, it's good good domestic, so enjoying that. And, and what about you, Alex? What are you having? Well, in anticipation of speaking with a lawyer, speaking mm. with an esquire, an attorney, I said, mm-hmm. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta step up my game a little bit. Mm. So I, you know, I thought to myself, I've never been in an attorney's office in my entire life, but I thought to myself, what would a group of attorneys be drinking together? And for whatever reason, cognac came to mind. Oh. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's true, but I am drinking some cognac right now. I am drinking it on the rocks. So call me a cheater if you'd like, but I'm drinking uh, Paul Bu. I don't know. I'm not French. Paul Bu, something like that. <laughs> So is that true? Do, do the do do attorneys do they sit around puff their cigars and, and drink cognac cognac or is that not is that not true? I'd say a lot of attorneys do have you know celebratory <laughs> alcohol in their offices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For those occasions they want to crack it out, but <laughs> but it's not something that's every you know day at one or two p.m. when it's like hey time for that just to keep the things going right. That those days are gone right. That definitely never happens. Never. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> okay, cool. Just so we're clear. Well, I, I will say this. I'm not a cognac guy, but I am enjoying this tonight. Uh, it's very um, kind of fruity. I mean, I know it's it's obviously it's it's grape distilled, but I mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe maybe I will become more of a cognac guy. I don't know. Pick a piece of art that represents you. Could be a song, movie, book, painting, video game, you name it or experience heck tell us about it so i i thought long and hard about this question and i have to go with legally blonde the movie Mm. (laughs) i think that i am reese witherspoon as l woods 2001 um Mm -hmm. you know i'm the i'm the blonde sorority girl i went to law school for all the wrong reasons chased the man of my dreams across the country no but um seriously (laughs) <laughs> to <laughs> Elwoods in that like I did go to law school I moved across the country for law school I applied to law school on a whim probably went for the wrong reasons to law school but you know graduated not valedictorian from Harvard Law but cum laude from Minnesota Law and the rest is history close enough <laughs> I love it basically the I same thing you know yeah. if, if you listen to our show you, the responses to that question it's it's so varied, and I love every response. And one of these days, Ron and I, we've talked about this before. We're gonna we're gonna catalog them all. I wanna, I, and then what would be even best is if they're randomized, and then I have to match it up. I have to remember who said what. I think it'd be a lot of fun. So legally blonde, Mike the Prince, got it forever and ever. That's your <laughs> response. So the the final question of the round, we actually just added this, and I think it's it's actually a, a, a good one. One of our listeners actually recommended this because he, he reached out to me, our, our friend Andrew, who was on the show, and he said, 
you know, Alex and Ron, like you started this podcast due to COVID, right? This show would have not started had it not been for COVID. And so I think there's, there's something to be said about as awful as this horrible pandemic has been, and we're not trying to minimize it in any way, there have been some positives in some way that I think were, are life altering and changing. And so one of the things we want to ask our guests is, doesn't have to be positive, but necessarily something that has changed your life or maybe your outlook, anything that COVID has done that has permanently changed your life. I, I'd say that my husband and I, work was insane before COVID. Like everyone else, I think there was no time to you know stop and reflect on the fact that we used our hotel or our house basically as a hotel. Mm-hmm. And it'd be like a high end buy at the beginning of uh, at the end of every day. You know, we both work full time from home and we see each other. And I'd say one of the best things is also we always wanted dogs, but we could never you know justify getting a dog and ever being home. So now we suddenly have two, and <laughs> I'm mildly obsessed with them. And they are. Did fantastic. you go? Did you go from zero to two all at once, or did you get like one and then you're like three months later I want another? How'd that work? So we got our first um, dog, Winston Handsome Pants, Duke of Torpington is his name. Wow, that is um, awesome. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's a good one. We got him in April, basically the first week of the pandemic. We were like, we're going to be here for a while. Let's get a dog. So we immediately mm-hmm. started calling and found him. The rest is history. And then a year later, we thought, you know what? He really needs a little sister. And out of the blue, someone we had called a year prior, we have dogs. Do you want one? And of course, the answer was yes. So a year later, uh, we got Penelope Sassy Pants, Duchess of Torquington, and they are <laughs> best friends. And if you've ever boarded them, how do they respond when you tell them the full name of the dogs? <laughs> they just go by Winston and Penny for short. Oh. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Those I are their Christian names if they're being bad. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What type of dogs are they? They're both corgis. They're uh, both corgis. Yeah, nice. little stubs for legs. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, don't yeah. tell my wife that you got dogs because she it's one of those things I've mentioned that's on the show before. I win the battles. I will lose the war. We ultimately will get dogs at some point, but I'm holding off as long as humanly possible. But that's fantastic. So you got dogs. You're spending more time with Clint. And and it sounded like I didn't mean to interrupt you. I got interested in the dog thing. But it sounds like you've you've been able to kind of reflect on time management a little bit. Is that is that right? Or is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say that's right. I think so many of us working from home, those of us who do, have a hard time, you know, putting up that boundary at the end of the day and drawing a line between work and home when home is work. But yeah, I definitely say that there's been some reflection of, you know, I I, I can't work, you know, 12 hour days forever and weekends and have it be sustainable. So it's been good to set those boundaries. Love it. Congratulations, Mike. Not only does that sound like a very good, positive thing that came out of a horrible pandemic, but also because you just graduated from the Ember Round at the School of Stud. So congratulations to you. You passed. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm honored. You did it. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're going to switch gear. We're going to get into a little bit more um, your career. Obviously, you've talked about how you are a lawyer. I want to dig into that a little bit more because I know after college you moved because we went to college together at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. 
you move to Minneapolis, right? St. Paul, the Twin Cities, and Minnesota. Yep. What was that like moving to the Midwest, moving to where it's very, very cold? And I assume you didn't really know that many people. Talk to us about that. I, I really just wanted to change from Pennsylvania being a lifelong Pennsylvanian and Minnesota, you know, it fell onto the table and I went for it. It's a very, it's a unique place in the country, we'll say, being nestled in the upper Midwest, almost in the tundra in the middle of nowhere. People often say, you know, people are Minnesota nice. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that phrase. Uh, I, I think that's right. And not to say Minnesotans aren't friendly people, but I think one of the hardest things for people who aren't from Minnesota or the Midwest is that Minnesota nice means like keeping people at an arm's length almost. Mm. Um, so there's the phrase, um, if you want to make friends in Minnesota, go to kindergarten. Uh, if you're not from there, it's really hard to penetrate into that circle and establish yourself because everyone's like, why are you in my state? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, and I don't know if you've heard, uh, there's a similar phenomenon in Seattle and it's actually, a, mm -hmm. it's called the Seattle freeze. Yeah. Have you heard that? I have heard of that. And it's this idea that like, yeah, you move into Seattle and it's like, who are you? Everyone moves into the city. And in a lot of cases, a lot of people who are from Seattle will just say, eh, you moved here for Amazon or Microsoft and you're going to be gone in a couple of years. So why should I waste my time to get to know you? Right. And it's, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, Minnesota, I, I assume, doesn't have nearly as many transplants, but it, I can understand where, listen, yeah, if you're not from here, who are you? And it, it's kind of interesting, you know, I've lived in the Midwest coming up on two years myself now. Right. And, and obviously Chicago is very, very, very different from Minnesota. But I will say this. I do think when people talk about Midwest friendliness, my initial take of that is historically the weathers were so horrible, right? Before you had electricity and heating, and you kind of had to look out for your neighbor for survival, right? Mm -hmm. And so you might not like your neighbor, you might have no relationship with them whatsoever, but I would imagine, especially before the days of phones, you had to look out for your neighbors and your neighbors had to look out for you. That's literally how you got through those rough, brutal winters. So I don't know if, if there's some of that sentiment in Minnesota at all, but I think that's my that's my very simplistic explanation for why Midwesterners, at least on the surface, appear kind of more friendly than maybe some other parts of the country. Yeah, I think that's right. It probably also explains why people are a little bit more community oriented um, mm -hmm. as well, but more close knit. Yeah, as you know, in Chicago, those winters are brutal, though they are hardy folk. Yes. Fortunately, you know, Ron and I, as you know, we grew up south of Buffalo. And I and yeah. I do believe that growing up east of the Great Lakes, I think, is snowier than in mm -hmm. Chicago. But Ch but Chicago yep. is way colder. I mean, like, right. it's not yep. even close. The cold is cold. <laughs> yep. Same in Minnesota. It's almost too cold to snow, but it is bitterly cold. Right. I think that's a big thing is... I don't know. It's kind of weird explaining that to my daughter because we live in Atlanta now and in Georgia, it's like, yeah, we don't get that cold, but it's weird to think like for, for anybody who's listening, that's maybe not from the Arctic tundra, there are temperatures where it's too cold to snow. Um, it's like, you kind of have to hit that sweet spot where 
there's enough humidity and precipitation that it allows it. But yeah, I don't know. It's that's a weird thing too with you know you mentioning that with the culture because living in Philly, I, I think Philly kind of has a bit of that East Coast vibe or slant where it's like Northeast. We're very much like okay, what do you want? Just just get it out. Not no, I want to say hi and hear your story. It's it's just what do you want? Get to the point. And <laughs> but there is something to be said. I mean, I. I there is something to be said about the directness, right? Sure. Like, and I've always defended Philly and New York and Boston from that end, right? Mm-hmm. I, I might say, yeah, they kind of come off as jerks, but you know what? They're going to be very face value to you, right? If they don't like you, you're going to know they don't like you, which I don't think that's the case in the Midwest. I think like my neighbor could hate my guts. I, I don't know, but he says hi to me every day, right? When I see him, right? Like there is a very much, uh, you don't know beyond the surface, uh, mm-hmm. which maybe at least on the East Coast, even if they are kind of jerks to you, at least you know that at least they at least you know they hate you. That's exactly right. I have a friend in Minnesota who grew up in Buffalo actually and she okay. said the hardest part was I never know where I stand with people. That's the hardest part of living in Minnesota for her. Yeah. So what were your favorite and least favorite things about living in Minneapolis? Yeah, all that said, after basically saying no one in Minnesota is nice. I actually loved living in Minnesota. (laughs) The beer and the food Mm -hmm. is actually really good. You can't throw a stone without hitting a brewery in Minneapolis at this point. I miss my beer. I miss my cheese curds. Oh, yeah. Uh, You really can't beat cheese curds. Yes. And, you know, I really miss that from Western New York. But then I'm so close to Wisconsin now. Mm. You're all set. I get to enjoy it all year round. Do you mind if we go into a little bit of a discussion about cheese curds? Because I have to imagine we've got listeners who probably have never had cheese curds, or if they've had it, the experience is just not anything well, near. If they've had it, it probably wasn't good because its shelf life is so right. short, especially if you want to get fresh cheese curds, right? Like you can you can deep fry it and that'll last longer. But if you mm-hmm. want fresh cheese curds, its shelf life is so short. I mean, it is pre-cheddar. Right during the the process of making cheese, all of a sudden all these curds will form, and if you keep going through the process, it'll harden and create a brick of cheese that we know today. But if you don't do that, if if you if you say all right, it's it's like pre cheese, you have these little curds. That's what they look like. They're like little balls, and they're nice and salty. And when you chew on them, they're a little squeaky. Yeah, yeah, squeaky cheese. That's how you know when they're good. If if you bite into it, it doesn't make a little squeaky noise. You know, it's like, mm, yeah, this is not good anymore. Most people, if they've ever had it, is is in the form of on poutine. Yeah. Also, poutine is very popular being so close to Canada. Mm-hmm. And what were some things that you maybe didn't like so much outside of not knowing where you stand with your neighbor? That's a big thing. Um, you get accustomed to dealing with the winters, as we've said, you know, it can mm-hmm. be you go weeks without hitting above zero Fahrenheit. It could be, you know, negative 25, negative 50. It's just cold. You mm-hmm. get used to it, but at the same time, you realize you really never go outside for a lot of the year. There are skyways which connect buildings, which is great, but you never go outside as a result. So that's one of the hardest things to get used to, I'd say. Speaking of when you're stuck inside, it's cold and you can't go anywhere. Talk to us about the glorious. Minnesota only thing known as a Juicy Lucy. And you're going to have to explain to the audience what a Juicy Lucy is. 
Oh, Alex, it is so good. The Juicy Lucy is this genius, beautiful creation where they take a hamburger, you know, hamburger meat, and you stuff it with cheese. So when you then cook the burger, the cheese melts on the inside. And when you bite in, the cheese oozes out. Simple, but amazing. It is fantastic. The only thing I've learned is you got it when it comes out, you got to let it sit for a couple minutes. Otherwise, you're going to bite into molten cheese and it's going to burn you like a mother. That is also accurate. <laughs> but but <laughs> I know I know it's kind of like it's kind of like the cheesesteak in Philly where everyone's got their place, right? I went this right. is where I go. For the Juicy Lucy, do you have a place that you get your Juicy Lucy? I do. It is called Blue Door and they have what they call a Blue Sea. Get it? Ah. I get it. Yep, got it. So my favorite Blue Sea at Blue Door was a horse kick Blue Sea. It is a hamburger stuffed with blue cheese, cream cheese, and horseradish. Oh. And then they top it with onions and horseradish sauce, and you dip it in an au jus. Wait, for those onions, are they caramelized or regular? Yes. Oh. Oh my gosh. I might need, you know what? Uh, I think I can get in my car and get to Minnesota and about Minneapolis, about six hours from Chicago. And then you can get yourself a blue sea. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I feel like it is yeah, worth the drive. After hearing about how much work went into making that, oh, I think, I don't know. I think had I visited Minneapolis, I would have trouble even comparing it and being like, you know what? I'm going to have to go for a blue sea. Right. Well, Ron, the key is when you go, yeah. you gotta you gotta go around all the town. You can't just have one juicy Lucy. You can't yeah. just have one Lucy and say you're done. You yeah. gotta. Tr- There's a lot of juicy Lucys all over the city. Yeah, Twin Cities, by the way. Right there too. All right. So I feel like I've heard of this bar exam, right? But I'll, I'll admit I I don't know much about it. Yeah, it involves think- liquor, right? It involves drinking. This bar exam, right? Right. It is does. That... It does. Okay. Just just checking. I'm so, really good at it. Okay. Yeah. You, you have to drink a lot at the bar, get through some late nights, and somehow you end up getting through the bar exam of some sort. Walk us through that. What What is that? Yeah. So I think that the bar exam is elusive. People have heard about it. It's this anxiety-inducing exam that you take after you finish law school that dictates whether you can do the thing you went to school for three years and took out tons of money in loans to do. You know, it's just basically the make or break of your career. And there are two components. There's a multiple choice day and an essay day. Um, Now, the multiple choice is not like, you know, what color is the sky? Blue, green. It's more... um, along the lines of each question is three paragraphs. It's a scenario, it's a hypothetical. And then you need to choose the most correct answer. And the answers are often no, because, no, because, yes, because, yes, because. Mm -hmm. And you pick the right one. So it's a six hour multiple choice exam the first day with 200 questions. And then the next day is an essay exam. It tests a lot of different areas. Include you know civil procedure, criminal procedure, contracts, constitutional law, evidence, property, torts, uh, wills, trust. The, the the list really goes on. 
So mm -hmm. you need to basically spend your entire summer between graduating law school and the end of July when the exams are normally administered. Just, you know, it's a full-time job studying and getting ready for this exam. And every state has their own bar exam, right? Kind of, yes. What's now called the uniform bar exam. Um, last I checked, I think maybe a little over half of the states have signed up for this uniform bar exam where everyone in those states, they sit down and they're taking the same exam regardless of where they are in the country. Uh, Pennsylvania likes to stand on its own. So I took the Pennsylvania bar exam. Um, I also took the New Jersey bar exam at that time, which was also a standalone exam. So it really depends on where you're testing. When you are taking it for different states, right? I, I understand outside of the unified one, is it significantly different or is it more just there's a, sec a section that talks about maybe state law that are unique to that state? Yeah, so the multiple choice exam is the same across the country. Everyone's taking the same multiple choice exam at the same time. The essays, if you're taking a state that tests, you know, it's state law, it could be a combination of state and federal law, but you have to learn state specific law uh, to get through the essay portion on top of federal law. Wow. Okay, so I just spent $200,000. I went to a top law school and got good grades. And I just can't pass the bar. I, I can't. I fail it every time. And I assume it's a very expensive test to take. What what can you do? What like what's the future of your life look like? <laughs> so your life is not over, number one. <laughs> uh, number two, you get, you know, instead of the Esquire at the end of your name, you get a a JD, a Juris Doctor at the end of your name. A very common term in the industry where you don't have you know, your Esquire at the end of your name, you are practicing law, but there are things that you can do that having that JD helps you. So, you know, when you go to law school, you're learning, you know, legislative process, research skills, writing skills, advocacy skills, and a lot of that can translate and parlay into other jobs if you're mm -hmm. doing like regulatory work or, um, you know, working for the government uh, or other things that are translatable and related, but aren't directly, you know, practicing law in the sense of the word. When it comes to the bar exams, all of them, as far as I understand it now, require you to have had some formal education, right? You, You're there wrong are... about, no, Ron, I was just going to bring this up. There are four okay. states, California, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington, mm -hmm. that theoretically you could just take the bar exam. And if you could knock it out of the park, guess what? You are a lawyer. I mean, is that is that possible? I mean, you you've taken the exam. Is there any way someone could actually pass the bar without going to law school? I'd be impressed. Has it happened? I'm sure it's happened. But um, just law school teaches you to think in a certain way. Law school doesn't teach you to take the bar exam, but it gives you really the foundations of what you need to you know get through pages upon pages of crazy hypotheticals and parts and figure out, you know, what is the best answer? What are all the issues? Yeah. Things like that. And fun fact, Maine and New York are two other states that will let you use a year or two of your law, what would be law school, to be an apprentice. So you can kind of substitute. It's like it doesn't require a full degree. It just requires mm -hmm. some years. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, like, you, you got to be pretty freaking smart if you can pass the bar without going to law school. I almost, 
I don't know if I want that guy or that lady to be my lawyer, <laughs> but that's still mighty impressive. It is very impressive. Yeah. So with that, um, we are going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Mike about what is it like working for a national law firm with over 1,200 lawyers. And then we're going to get into some fun stuff. I want to talk about living in Washington, D.C. the last couple of years, because I have to imagine that has been fascinating. And we're going to talk about something that's been creeping up in the media right now, which is all this D.C. statehood thing. We had a lawyer who lives in D.C. Who better to give his perspective? So we'll talk about that when we come right back. Hey, everyone. It's Ron. Wanted to take a quick moment to ask you as our listeners to do a quick favor for us. If you get a chance to, we're really trying to promote our YouTube channel. So if you'd be so kind as to actually go to look up Between Two Studs on YouTube and uh, click like or subscribe to any of our videos, we'd greatly appreciate it. And if you really don't want to do anything with YouTube, that's cool too. Send us a note. You can reach us at between at two studs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to Between Two Studs. We're here with Mike DePrince Esquire. And he was talking to us about how he went to law school up in Minnesota, passed the bar exam, and then he started working for a national law firm with over 1,200 attorneys. Mike, can you talk to us about that? I know you started working at this firm in Philadelphia, and then you also took that exact same position or a similar position and moved to D.C. with the same firm, right? That's exactly right. So um, after my second year of law school, I, I walked away from that center with an offer to join after graduation. The rest is history. Um, so I did that in Philadelphia. Uh, though my uh, now husband at the time uh, was working in D.C. while I was working in Philly, that was not sustainable long term. So I talked to my firm and said, hey, are you fine with me making my move down to D.C.? They were on board. So uh, I basically kept my same job, work with the same people, doing the same cases. I just now live and work in D.C. instead. When you were like a 12-year-old boy, did you wake up one day and say, you know what? I want to get into white-collar litigation and investigations. Yes, as every other 12-year-old boy does. How did, that, how did that happen? <laughs> Walk us through that. And, and also, what is that? I mean, I know what white collar is, but like, can you explain for a layman? Yeah, so I really fell into it. My first assignment at the firm was for, you know, a, a white collar oriented case, and I've been sticking with it since. So white collar broadly refers to alleged crimes or wrongdoing committed, committed by businesses around money. So think like economic fraud and abuse. That could be like bribery, kickbacks, tax evasion, SEC violations, money laundering, things like that. So I do what is called white collar work in a very niche area of healthcare work. So I represent a lot of healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies in areas that are investigated and prosecuted by federal agencies. Uh, sometimes I also represent clients in whistleblower litigation. Uh, that's when private actors come in on behalf of the government and litigate those issues in the government's stead. And then other times uh, clients bring me on and our team on to do internal investigation. They think something's off internally or to help them you know, set up compliant uh, programs if they want to undertake some kind of new program to make sure that they're not going to, you know, tread into it and face some kind of law enforcement action on the other end. 
So it's really helping healthcare clients navigate through rules and regulations around wrongdoing. So we, as you probably are aware, we're not an overtly political podcast, but what was D.C. like under Trump as a presidency and then now with Biden? I mean, I would imagine it's a very liberal city, but I would think that it was probably very contentious when tens of thousands were employed within the Trump administration moved in versus moving out. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so you hit uh, you hit the nail on the head that D.C. is a very liberal city. I think in the 2020 presidential election, we voted right. 95% in favor of now President Biden. I think the interesting thing about living in D.C. under the Trump presidency is that D.C. is the seat of the federal government, but it's also so many people's home. Mm-hmm. Um, so every presidency, a new president and administration is coming into our home city. And oftentimes people make that city home and they assimilate, they assimilate and become part of D.C. And what was um, palpably different with the Trump administration was, at least from a resident's perspective, it felt like Trump was very in and out. He was in D.C. to be at the White House, and then he left to go elsewhere and never really tried to bridge that gap and become part of the D.C. community. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and even so- his, his wife, Melania, and their child, didn't they spend almost the first year of his presidency back in New York? I think that's right. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just almost an awkward feeling um, when Trump did eventually come out to things. For example, I went to a Nationals game. And then President Trump came to uh, um, a Nationals game. It was one of the first times he had gone out in D.C. Uh, in public. Uh, he was placed on you know, the, the, the Jumbotron and announced, and the entire stadium booed him. Um, and, oh. and his face just went from like smiling to deadpan because I think he lived in a D.C. bubble uh, where he really kept to people who supported him and didn't really go outside to D.C. where we didn't really like him to begin with, but also never made an effort to become you know, part of D.C. And that's got to be a stark contrast with Biden, who, having been a VP, having traveled as much as he has to D.C. And, you know, Alex and I, we have definitely spent a good amount of time in Delaware. It was really very much a known thing that Biden spent a ton of time in D.C., he seems as somebody who's much more ingratiating himself into the DC subculture. Have you kind of seen that yourself personally now? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I mean, most people nowadays, you know, are on Facebook and they may ascribe to, you know, their community's Facebook mm-hmm. page. I've already seen photos of First Lady Dr. Biden, you know, mm-hmm. going to the pastry shop in the next neighborhood down to grab a scone and a coffee. And mm-hmm. you, know, you, you, you already feel a difference where they're actually making themselves part of DC while they're living here for the next four to eight years. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think it's just really interesting because at the end of the day, I think a lot of people who don't know DC aren't from DC. It's like, ah, we're, we're electing this person over this person. And that's really all that matters. But it's like, no, when you become the president, you are bringing in tens of thousands of employees with you directly Mm -hmm. or indirectly. And by the way, whoever your predecessor, those people just lost tens of thousands of jobs. So it's, it's not just about this guy named Donald Trump or this guy named Joe Biden. You're talking about an establishment of 
tens of thousands of families moving in and out of D.C. possibly every four years. I mean, what a phenomenon. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If you go on, you know, Redfin in election years, you just see housing on the market in droves suddenly spiking in those election years. That's totally right. I think that's so fascinating. I think it leads really well into, I'm not going to lie, Mike, one of the main reasons I wanted you on this show, and I wanted it to be in season one, is because of everything happening right now, there's a lot of discussion It passed the House of Representatives, this idea of making D.C. its own state. And I think that's something that's been talked about on and off probably since the beginning of when Washington, D.C. was made Washington, D.C. But it's starting to pick up a lot of traction. And I said, who better than an attorney living in Washington, D.C. to comment on it? And I'm not going to lie, Mike, I did some homework before this discussion because this is not like a 2021 conversation, like to really get into this. And I want your take and I want your opinion, but like this legitimately goes back to in 1783, when Philadelphia was the capital, there was this crowd of revolutionary war soldiers who they ended the war and they were really upset about not getting paid all their money. So they basically rioted outside of the Capitol building in Philadelphia. Basically, the Continental Congress was not able to do their job. And Continental Congress was like, hey, Pennsylvania, like, bring out your militia. Do something about this because we need to get back to work. Pennsylvania was like, sorry, you're on your own. And so what ended up happening was they had to move to New Jersey to get back to working at the federal government level. And so it was Madison who was like, listen, I don't trust any individual states because they're going to be partisan if you have a Republican governor and a Democratic-run federal government, they're going to butt heads. And so the only way to do this is to create a federal district. And that was the origin, but obviously that was over 200 years ago. So the origin of why things were created then might not be a good reason why things are still the way they are today. But but I, I looked into that because I thought that was fascinating. And I'd love your take, and, and maybe not even just your take, but what the sense is. I know we're still getting through COVID, but there's still like, a buzz, right? You can tell when there's a community, a buzz. Talk Mm -hmm. to us about that. The DC statehood movement is stronger than ever, I would say. I mean, I'm a very new DC resident. And from what I can tell, this has been a recurring issue over, you know, several decades. This is not new. The the majority of households have, you know, DC statehood signs Mm -hmm. uh, in their front yards. Like, I think we're at a, a turning point here. Uh, where there's finally, you know, support and momentum uh, to get this movement further than it's really ever gotten in recent memory. Uh, and people are trying to capitalize on that. Over time, right, since 1783, there's been a lot of concessions over time, very slowly mm-hmm. but surely. You know, and a lot of these, again, I didn't know anything about, but it's like, well, originally Washington, D.C. was 100 square miles. Right. And, and half of that roughly was given up by the state of Virginia and half of that was given up by the state of Maryland. Today, the district has nothing to do with what, what was formerly Virginia. Right back in the 1840s, Virginia said, nah, 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 we're taking the land back that we gave up. Mm-hmm. So what D.C. is today is more or less just what Maryland originally contributed. And I think that's, I think that's fascinating, too. Like our own district has changed over time. That's right. I mean, when the district was created, there's nothing that prescribes it must be a 
square district that's 10 miles by 10 miles that kind of sits over a river like a diamond and like it's it's borders have definitely been in flux over the years and i think one of the interesting things doing my own homework for this show was i didn't realize that one of the reasons that virginia the virginian land retroceded back to virginia was that the alexandrians mm -hmm. DC also wanted to go back to Virginia. So it was almost like this agreement between Virginia and Alexandrians in DC of let's get this land back to Virginia. I had to look it up on a map because I, I saw the same thing. I didn't believe that Alexandria was originally part of DC. I, I couldn't believe that. I had to look it up and I, I sure enough it was. It's the it was the bottom right corner. Yeah, and if you look at the current like county lines that are in Northern Virginia, you can basically see what was once the sideways square that was the DC because now Arlington County is the square. From what I understand, the district was originally 10 miles by 10 miles. You had 100 square miles. Now, the Constitution states that there has to be a federal district, but I don't think there's any requirement on how large that district could be. So theoretically, you could say, well, we're just going to make the mall the federal district. And all of what we know today is Washington, D.C., with the exception of the mall, which is where all the people live outside of the mall, would be its own entity. And I think that's a really, really interesting and thought-provoking idea. Of course, the devil's advocate in me would say, well, Virginia retook its own land. Why wouldn't what is D.C. today, which was all originally part of Maryland, why wouldn't it just be part of Maryland again? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So I think first, the idea of retrocession, interestingly, has a lot of roots in slavery. One of the reasons why uh, in Northern Virginia, that was then D.C., wanted to get back into Virginia was to protect a vital part of its economic industry, which was its port, which garnered a lot of you know slave trade. Uh, so it was strategic for Alexandrians to get support in Virginia and vice versa to bring part of that land back into a stronghold Southern state. So first, I think it's interesting that we're talking about retrocession today when its roots are really rooted in slavery and racism. Another part of retrocession is that Virginia and um, what was then the Virginia portion of D.C., agreed to this. When you look today to what is now D.C., D.C. has 750,000 residents, and that's comparable with, you know, five U.S. states in terms of population. There are a lot of people here. And really the dynamic is what is now D.C. today has its own culture, its own history, its own interests. So I think when I looked at recent polling, like DC really doesn't want to be part of Maryland and Maryland really doesn't want us either. So what's so different about the retrocession discussion today is it's people who aren't in Maryland or DC coming in and saying, no, we don't want DC to be a state. We actually want you to rejoin. And it's almost like this federal mandate being imposed on people who mutually don't want this. I think that's a really, really good point that you bring up. Of course, the skeptic would say, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, right? In this 2020 election, 95% of DC constituents voted Democratic. They voted for, for Joe Biden. Well, is this just a ploy to get two more Democratic senators, a guaranteed two more every single 
election cycle, I think that's that's going to be the natural response by moderates and conservatives. Do you think that's a fair thought or is that is that just a bunch of hubbub? Yeah, I, I would tend to say it's a bunch of hubbub. I think the politicized nature needs to be removed from the basic question of do people who live in the United States and pay taxes deserve to have their interests represented in front of the federal Congress? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Uh, when you add on the extra politicized layer of does DC deserve two Democratic senators, for example, that's then politicizing the basic question of what we should be focusing on is should people be represented in our government? And I think most people, once you take out that political nature, the answer would be yes. And would DC necessarily vote two Democratic senators? Like it, it probably would. But I think the question is should the district be able to have the people of its choosing represent its interests. If that happens to be Democrats, so be it. Yeah, I think it's this is a really, really phenomenal and interesting discussion because again, I, I really wanted to dig into this more. And as I was doing my research, and obviously you have as well, is when you look at the history of DC, the thing that actually stood out the most to me, more than the representation. And I know that might sound crazy to you. Like, what's more important than the representation? What surprised me the most was that there's a clause in the Constitution that grants the U.S. Congress exclusive jurisdiction over the entire district in, quote, all cases whatsoever. So what that means is that the United States Congress could overturn local laws within the city of D.C., has that ever happened? I'm not aware of it. It could have. But to me to say, wait, we have local government. Forget about federal government for a second. We have a local government and the federal government could could say, now nah, we're going to squash that. Now, to me, that is unfair representation. I think this happened before I moved to D.C., but um, Washington, D.C. legalized marijuana and Congress actually moved to block D.C.'s step forward to legalize marijuana. So that is absolutely correct, that D.C. law can only really govern itself to the extent that Congress wants us to govern ourselves. But I have no say what goes on two miles down the road uh, that then impacts not only us, but the entire country. Uh, it's a little bizarre that there is this artificial barrier standing between us and representation. That's what I view as purely political. I will say this, just to be devil's advocate, Mike, because I got to play devil's advocate. Absolutely. It's not fair to say they don't have any representation at the federal level because of the 23rd Amendment. The 23rd Amendment was specifically put in to say, you know what, even though D.C. is not a state, we are going to give them three electoral votes during the presidential election, which is why when you said 95% of people voted for Joe Biden in 2020 in DC, it meant something. Now it doesn't mean something for any other territory in the United States because they don't have that particular 23rd amendment protection. And the 23rd amendment states, whatever the, the lowest state in the country has in terms of popular in terms of electoral votes that's what dc would get so theoretically if the lowest was four then dc would get four now it's true you don't get elected officials in congress although you do get what they call shadow representation 
which do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's fascinating. And most people don't know anything about it. I mean, yeah, it's basically we vote this person. I think her name is Eleanor Norton Holmes, if memory serves. We vote for her to represent us uh, in the House of Representatives. And she is just there. She gets to, you know, talk and listen. But at the end of the day, she really has no vote or power. So we just have someone who hangs out in the House of Representatives. And you get two senators as well. Two, they're, they're the same thing. They, they have no voting power. Although, if I understand correctly, they're allowed to be members of committees. So they are allowed to have discussions in within committees. And obviously, they because they're Democrats, they caucus with the Democrats. But they don't have voting authority. But I, I give this background to say throughout the last 200 years, there have been concessions made to say, how do we give D.C. something? How do we throw them a bone without giving them full-on statehood? Now, what ends up happening, though, this is this is where things get really fascinating, and maybe this is where, Mike, you need to put on your, your law cap and help me understand this, because the 23rd Amendment is there. The 23rd Amendment says the federal district gets three votes towards the Electoral College, or the minimum amount, right? In this case, three. Okay. Well, so if we shrank the size of the district to the size of the mall and we made the rest of Washington, D.C. its own state, the state of Columbia, whatever we're going to call it, then whoever's living in the mall, which I think is just the president. And homeless people. Don't forget homeless people. Okay, homeless people and the president of the United States are going to get three electoral votes. That's crazy. The only way to do that, you'd have to unamend an amendment, which – Again, I think um, unamending an amendment is 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 a bitch. Yeah, and I think that the Twenty Third Amendment is not an impediment to DC statehood. I think the way the Twenty Third Amendment is written, it doesn't say the District of Columbia, which always must be the District of Columbia and can never be a state, shall have you know three electoral votes or mm. whatever the minimum is. It just says the district. So the Twenty Third Amendment, uh, and I'm not a constitutional scholar by any stretch of the imagination doesn't bar the district of columbia from being a state you're right that any land that becomes federal land and the new seat of the capital so to speak would pretty much only have the president vice president and a few select folks who live down there but can you have a i mean i don't know the answer this sounds like the answer is yes i didn't know you could be a federal district and a state simultaneously i thought the whole idea is you shrink the size of the district to be just the mall or whatever, but that federal district still has to, according to the 23rd Amendment, have three votes. That's so that, that's right. I wasn't suggesting that it could be both like a federal district and a state. Uh, okay. Rather, the federal district would just shrink in size. Most of DC becomes a state. And then you have that remaining land left that is federal land. But then it pretty much renders the 23rd Amendment Null and void because and void. all you're doing is right. All you're doing is basically yeah. giving the power to whoever's in power to say. Well, but but Whoa. is it null and void, or are you no, basically it's... giving whoever whoever is in control of the presidency gets three extra votes every four years? So I think the argument is the Twenty Third Amendment becomes kind of obsolete. Like the need for the Twenty Third Amendment was to give the several hundred thousand citizens of the District of Columbia, you know, a voice in our presidential elections. There's no longer that need for the 23rd Amendment. So I think that there, as part of this legislation, I think it's H.R. 51, uh, which is the statehood bill, calls for an expedited path 
to go through the process of repealing the 23rd Amendment. You can't just, you know, legislate around this, but at least that legislation would call for a path to get rid of the 23rd Amendment. Well, I, so I completely agree with you on on that it makes the 23rd Amendment obsolete, but it's still an obstacle because if, if, the, if you know, amendments change interpretation or motive over time, right? Like, you know this better than all, both of us, right? Like the 14th Amendment interstate, interstate uh, commerce clause, that original interpretation when that was put in the books in the 1860s, it's used in constitutional law in very, very different ways today, right? So you could make the same argument that, well, the 23rd Amendment had a very specific purpose when it was put on the books, but if Washington, D.C. becomes its own state, you still have the 23rd Amendment. You're going to have to interpret it somehow, right? Even though like in, 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 in the origin of why it was put on the books in the first place is obsolete, you still have to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's right. And you'll just have to repeal it because I think you're right. It's absurd to give the select few that remain in the new smaller federal district such disproportionate power and such self-interested individuals disproportionate power when you know elections are so tight nowadays. So I think you're right. The 23rd Amendment, it's there, but does it stand in the path? Does it bar D.C. from becoming a state? I think the answer to that is no. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I think this is a very, very interesting conversation that we could talk about for hours because I, I love this this discussion. I, I love constitutional thought. My take on this, Mike, is it's absurd that D.C. local law can be overruled by the federal government. I think that's insane. Yeah. I, I think that... To make D.C. its own state, I think, is there needs to be a compromise. I would say give it back to Maryland. But I understand D.C. people would say, I mean, you made a valid point, which is, well, yeah, but culturally, D.C. is not like the rest of Maryland. But you could say the same thing about, I mean, Ron and I grew up in western New York. Western New York is nothing like New York City, right? Like that that's part of the, what happens when you're in a state. Like a state has a representation that doesn't really reflect a cohesive homogenous viewpoint. Yeah, I think the, the the difference here is that no state has ever had to go has never had to go through this weird constitutional process of like amendments. It was just like y'all want to be a state? Cool. Congress, you want them to be a state? Cool. Done. Now it's like no no no, like we actually really you want to be a state, but we don't want you to be a state. So just like go join this state. It's very different. Mike, final question of the night. I think this is this is a fantastic question. I, I really am excited for both you and your husband, Clint. From what I understand, at the end of this year, you and Clint will be moving to Australia. And I've never been, but walk me through what's going on in your mind right now. Do you have the Vegemite planned? What what is what is happening? And walk us through how long you're gonna be there and what does that mean for Philadelphia cheesesteaks that and wooder that you're gonna want so much? Those are all good questions. Um, this is the last thing that was on our 2021 bingo card. Clint, uh, he works for the government. He is a civilian in the U.S. Navy, and he applied for a job not knowing where they could station him if he got the offer. Uh, and he got the offer, and they said, we're going to send you to Melbourne, Australia for at least three years if you want it. Uh, so we had a, an oh crap kind of week of, are we doing this? Are we really doing this? And we're doing it. It's one of those offers you can't quite pass up. So things are crazy right now with 
COVID, um, Australia has really been taking it seriously and their borders are closed down. It's very difficult for even Australians to get back to Australia right now. So we're going through the hoops right now of getting you know, official U.S. passports, which we just got ours in the mail today, and getting special approval from the Australian government to enter their country and figuring out how to get our dogs there, which is an expensive and complicated process. But I would imagine you know, especially it. getting getting the legal names of your dogs on on paperwork. I imagine that's kind right. of tricky. Yeah, we did not think that one through. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> but it's really it's it, it's it's really exciting. Uh, it, it'll be a great move for us to explore a new part of the world. I've never been to Australia. I know, Ron, you lived uh, in Singapore for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to be a great gateway to experience a part of the country or a part of the world that otherwise I probably would not get to explore in my lifetime. I think you'll have a wonderful time there. I know Alex and I have certainly talked about my being an expat during some of our episodes, but I, I think one of the best parts about being an expat is just all of the experiences you have, all of the things you'll get to see and do that are so outside of being an American. And I think one of the best things that I had as a takeaway is the appreciation I have for the United States of America as somebody who has been somewhere else. Because I think you just don't know what are the good things that you have objectively until you've really been somewhere else. So I'm sure you and your husband will have a wonderful time there. I have nothing but great experiences with Australians and they're, they're funny people. So I think you'll have a lot, an awesome time. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much. I look forward to being on between two studs season three with my uh, up close and personal of how, how is Vegemite and driving on the left-hand side of the road going? Yes. <laughs> and you need to talk to us about koalas, didgeridoos and kangaroos. <laughs> We would okay. absolutely love that. Do you do you um do you have like a bucket list that you're working on while you're in Australia? Like, do you want to do the Great Barrier Reef? Like, do you have like a list, or is that you're not even thinking there yet? Uh, we're starting to get some of our to-do list. There's the Barossa Valley, which is like the Napa Valley of Australia. We definitely want to frequent as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to see New Zealand. We want to see Tasmania. We want to experience Eastern Asia, which I've never done. There's there's so much already, you know, aggregating on this list. Uh, we can make it more manageable, if anything. Well, and, you know, I just cheated. I went on Wikipedia and Googled Australia. And get this, immigrants account for 30% of the country, which is the highest proportion amongst all major Western nations, which is funny that that Australia is considered a Western nation, but that's neither here nor there. I guess culturally, <laughs> I guess culturally it is, you're not going to be alone. You're not going to be the only expat in Australia, that's for sure. That's very correct. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Well, we are so excited to hear more about it. Obviously, when we coordinate season three, uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult. It's going to be like 10 a.m. your time, 11 p.m. our time or something absurd like that. Yeah. But we will make it work and it'll be a lot of fun. And I have I mentioned this to you previously, but my wife went to Australia, did the Great Barrier Reef, fell in love with it. I've never been. And if you and Clint are going to be there for three years, well, I think I'm going to find an excuse to get out there and visit. We will have a second bedroom, so you better. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Well, Mike, thank you so, so much 
for taking the time to kind of explain to Ron and I the world of law, talking about the wonderful city that is D.C., talking about the Juicy Lucy, and we're excited for your future adventures together with your husband, Clint, and we're excited to have you on in a future episode. Yeah, thanks so much, Ivo. It's been a blast.